So we show up, and this time we knew that they probably knew we were in the neighborhood because we had make, made some ruckus. Our vehicles were parked outside for, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, something like that. And so they knew we were there for sure. In this episode of Never Left Behind, myself and my business partner, Dan Blakely, sit down and talk about an introduction into our business, our childhood friendship, and the start of our new company, United Valor. Dan explains his experiences overseas on his six deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, from stories of being on the front lines to how his life has transitioned post-war and back into the civilian lifestyle. This is the epic start to our podcast, highlighting the untold stories of veterans across all branches of the U.S. military. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Welcome to our first episode of Never Left Behind. I'm here with uh, Dan Blakely, who's actually my business partner. And tonight we're going to kind of talk about a little bit of how we met, uh, a little bit about, about our business that we're starting right now, and to kind of give you a heads up, an idea of what this podcast is going to look like. So to get started, I'm going to go into how Dan and I first met. What were we about five years old when we first met? I was I five so. or six. Yeah, knocking on your on your door looking for a, a friend in the neighborhood. Yeah. So I we basically grew up. I grew up. Your grandparents lived two doors down from my family in a small desert town called Yucca Valley, California. And you were flying in from was it Nebraska at the time? I think it was actually Iceland at the time. Oh shit. Yeah. That's where you're at. Yeah. So basically, Dan and I met ever since we were young boys and then just got in all kinds of trouble, went to high school together. Basically, our lives kind of went its own direction. Um, Dan actually joined the Army. I kind of went off and got into photography, and we came together and moved my life across the country. And now we started this company, which is called United Valor. Basically, what we're doing is starting a company that is working with veterans and working on different books and merchandise and having a whole platform and website where these podcasts are going to be held to where we're going to be interviewing different veterans and sharing the untold stories of various veterans across all branches that maybe just need to get the voice out there are suffering with physical or emotional um, difficulties or just problems in their life that they've dealt with post-war and during the past 20 years of the global war on terror. So we're starting a whole company based on that. And it's kind of fun to get started with this. Yeah. Kind of the kickoff. Yeah. Where we're going. Um, no, it's a, a really cool premise and just how everything kind of lined up with, uh, like you said, we moved our own separate ways for, gosh, I don't know. I, I guess I graduated when I was 17, joined the army immediately. And then, um, we kind of did our own thing. We mm-hmm. visited each other every once in a while, but never really spent a significant amount of time until, this past year yeah. got together and then you know, decided to uproot from California and move to North Carolina. And oh yeah. Kind of, I think between us getting together and then just realizing what each of our own, I guess, strengths and passions were this kind of merged, I think for the perfect opportunity to, mm-hmm. to do something I've been thinking about for a long time and for you to capitalize on, you know, your artistry and what you're really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then for me to give back to the veteran community and for both of us to give back to the veteran community, I think this is going to be a, a pretty powerful experience. And um, I'm pretty excited to get the get the ball rolling and, and start talking to some folks and sharing their stories. And I think that's why we have this this kind of first episode is so that we can, you know, if I'm going to ask all these veterans to share their, you know, part of history and story, I think it's only fair that I probably share a little bit of mine first. Yeah. And for people listening, like to reiterate, we've known each other since we were kids and uh, Dan, you were deployed for what, six years? Or you were deployed five times, but your career was six years in the army. Six years, deployed six times. Three okay. To, three to Iraq, three to Afghanistan. So Dan obviously understands the lingo and has a lot of stuff that uh, obviously is very personal to him that he hasn't even shared with me. So it's kind of interesting to start this first podcast off on a very kind of sentimental and close to home, um, almost like just interview, like two friends talking to each other and shooting the shit and kind of warming everybody up and, and informing people of what we're doing and to kind of go from here. We have a lot of veterans to interview, and I think we want to start this off with like I said, two friends kind of starting off this way. So it, it's kind of neat. And I think that um, the, the most unique thing is that, like Dan said, as I got up and uplifted my life from California, um, this is obviously during 2020 with just everything going on with the global pandemic. And I just got tired of the taxes and the laws in California. And I've been traveling to North Carolina, um, I'd say probably about 12 or 13 times. Um, visiting you and dating somebody out here and then just want to relocate my life and be around more like-minded individuals and have a better calling and purpose and i think ever since i've been out here with starting you know united valor it's been more my true calling in a sense that i've always done photography for the past probably about almost 12 years now um i shouldn't say like selfishly but more finding ways to do it myself basically wanting to find the best ways that i can make the most money on it Nowadays with social media become the biggest, you know, Instagram photographer, become the biggest photographer in the industry of like fashion between LA and New York. And I got so sidetracked. And I think now I found a reason to put my talent with photography into a better purpose. So it's kind of exciting to just, even though we're starting, we have so much room to grow and it's kind of like the sky's the limit on where we can take this thing and how many people we can really help out. Yeah. I think, you know, through all of our discussions over the past couple of weeks that we've kind of launched this thing and, and, uh, really developed, you know, what is our, our message and like, what are we truly trying to accomplish is one thing that I keep on circling back to. And I, I think, you know, you're starting to realize more and more, um, there's a lot to say about somebody who's going to take their expertise, something that they're good at and apply it for a cause, something that's, you know, unselfishly for somebody else. Totally. Um, you know, it's that selfless service to, to the other, other person, to the other man, to the other woman, you know, to really give back. And I think that's exactly what this, you know, kind of the mission of our, of our podcast, of our company is, is to give back. And, uh, you know, coming from a civilian, um, role and wanting to really, you know, give back to the military, I think is, is incredible. And I think a lot of people are going to hopefully connect with it, you know, not only the veterans that are going to hear these stories and, and, uh, know that there's other people out there like them, but even from the civilian world realize that, you know, there's still, you know, hundreds of thousands of veterans that have been serving over the past 20 years, mm -hmm. um, 
and that, you know, they all have a voice and they shouldn't be forgotten. Um, and that, you know, every civilian really could do more. Um, yeah. And I feel like there's so much that's been happening in the world right now that I think we're starting to get to a phase where people are getting forgotten again. And we shouldn't get there. Um, we should always remember, you know, the sacrifice that our veterans mm. have put into the wars that we've been in. Um, whether you agree or disagree with, you know, what the purpose of that war was for, um, regardless, you know, everybody volunteered to to give that choice of ultimate sacrifice if they needed to. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, this cause and what you, you know, you're pursuing of this and, and us as a, as a company pursuing this, I think is a, is a just cause and it's really exciting to kind of get it started. Well, it's definitely, um, different. I think because as a kid, like you would know, I was obsessed with military. Mm-hmm. Like I memorized like every weapon and tank and aircraft used in World War II, Vietnam, Desert Storm, watched every war movie. I don't know what it was. I think I was just this young and gung-ho kind of kid that always loved the action and the military and wanted to support that. But obviously as I got older, you know, more things come up in life to where it's in the back of your mind. You, you stop thinking about the people that have sacrificed their lives for your freedom. And I think that uh, I've always kind of had it somewhere deep within because obviously you being the closest person to me that's been enlisted, that was a constant reminder, especially when you're younger, when, you know, you first went on deployment. Um, that was pretty hard for me from a, a friendship level to where it was like, you know, is my friend going to come back? He's going to come back like how should I say it? Normal. Is there, you know, there were so many avenues that this thing could have gone in. And I think that, uh, now, even from the first, you know, we're just getting started, but the first few interviews that we've already done with these other veterans that we're going to be doing podcasts on and, and, uh, having them in a future book that we're working on just hearing kind of the emotion and excitement and everything behind it. It's kind of, I don't know, it hits home on a deeper level. And I think that as a civilian, I think most civilians understand what troops do, but when you really hear like a man choking up on the phone and you hear what he's been through, it just hits a whole different level. And so my goal is to try and bridge that gap to kind of get this out there to help obviously veterans and donate to foundations that benefit veterans, but to also get it out there for civilians to understand and see the emotion behind it, see how much passion we have. And hopefully that kind of creates a spark to where there's more civilians, um, you know, like myself that may want to start up their own company or they want to do something in, to help out veterans. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a, um, I, I think it'll be an emotional journey for everybody, for us, you know, totally. that are doing these interviews for the people that are, um, you know, volunteering to, to basically give their time and tell their story, but also, you know, whoever the end listener is. Um, I have a feeling every single, you know, story is going to impact somebody in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, and really my, I guess, end goal is to, is to really connect, um, with people and for people, you know, on the other side to listen and and understand either if they're a veteran, um, and they've been through a similar circumstance that there are other people out there like them, or if they are a civilian that, you know, there's a lot that we've gone through, um, as different military members and all different branches of military and you know we all have different stories like yeah to to ball all military members under one you know umbrella is really not doing anybody justice you know Mm -hmm. we're all human beings we all have different thoughts beliefs um understanding of 
you know, our perspective of war or our perspective of whatever our, our experience was. Um, and so I think these stories are going to be, again, really, really impactful for everybody. Totally. I think it's, um, so <clears throat> I think my first question is obviously outside of um, knowing you uh, before you were deployed, what was it kind of like when after the six years you spent overseas kind of coming back to a civilian life? Was it like a hard adjustment? Was it kind of like a, cause I can imagine being around nothing but adrenaline filled men for that long, even if it's only a few months on and off, um, that life definitely changes. And when you come back, is it kind of like an easy adjustment? Is it a difficult, like, what was it personally to you? Yeah. So like you said, it was definitely an adrenaline filled, you know, I joined when I was 17 and, and we can get back to kind of the origin story in, in a little bit, but, um, joined when I was 17, I got out when I was 26. Um, and I served with second Ranger battalion all six of those years. Um, so, you know, our goal, basically our mission was to find, you know, high value targets and those that support those high value targets and either capture or kill them. So, and real quick, what is, um, before I just saw it was not was my thought, what is like second battalion? Like what is kind of like their main goal? Cause I don't know kind of like the, the lingo of that. Yeah. So, uh, second Ranger battalion is part of the, uh, special operations command and, um, for army rangers. Yes. Okay. For army, so army rangers, uh, Navy SEALs, special forces, um, we all fall under special operate, uh, special operations command. And basically, you know, our goal is either tier one, tier two targets, mm -hmm. which are, you know, kind of the, the dirtiest of the dirtiest type of terrorists and people that support those terrorists globally. You're talking like Bin Laden. Yep. Saddam Hussein. Yeah. All those kind of guys. So yep. it's, it's kind of equivalent to like CMTL-6, MARSOC yep. for Marines. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would, well, we can get into other conversations, you know, later yeah. about like how, how I think Rangers see themselves and I'm sure Navy SEALs see themselves different ways and same with Marsh well, totally and PJs and, oh yeah, there's, <laughs> there's competition always between all, you know, all spe special operations. And so, um, you know, everybody sees themselves in a different way, but ultimately we're all there for the same objective is to, you know, provide security for the nations that we're trying to, you know, stabilize, um, and provide a, a democratic opportunity for them to, you know, govern their country. Um, that's, I think the end goal is to spread democracy and, you know, um, basically, uh, eliminate evil throughout the world. And mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, any, any unstable nation throughout the world provides an opportunity for terrorist organizations to flourish and then ultimately, you know, uh, attack or, um, you know, uh, yeah, basically attack any nations that they see or people that they see different than them. Um, so yeah, that was our, our main goal is basically, okay. uh, you know, all my deployments were in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they were directly affiliated with the global war on terror. Um, and was there like certain parts? Can you talk about that? Of like, where you, where you were at or is it just as a whole Iraq and Afghanistan? Kind no, of I can, around? I can tell a little bit. So, um, I was in Mosul for my first and second deployment. Okay. And Baghdad for my third deployment. Um, and then I went to Iraq or Afghanistan for my fourth, fifth, and sixth deployment. And uh, my fourth and fifth deployment were, um, well, the first part of my fourth deployment was uh, basically on the west or eastern side of Afghanistan, really close to Himalayan mountains. Mm -hmm. um, 
basically at high elevation all the time. Uh, I think our, our FOB or forward operating base was at like 8,000 feet or something like that. And a lot of our missions Jeez. were at, you know, 10, 9, 10, 11,000 feet. So what's so like high elevation? Yeah. You're talking like places like Colorado yeah. here then where it's like cold and there's snow. Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Shit. No, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. It was, um, I, I remember multiple, you know, objectives that we had to walk in and I remember one specifically in knee deep snow where one guy was actually a heat casualty because he was wearing, um, you know, a lot of basically winter gear mm-hmm. overheated on the way there, but then you're sweating the whole time and oh, then shit. you stop when you're on objective and you're, you know, you clear the building, everything, uh, do what you need to on site and then pull security while well, the guy was on security freezing cold outside, knee-deep snow, and then he was a cold casualty. So he actually got, uh, I think, mild hypothermia. So really? he went from overheating to hypothermia in like a four-hour so period. his body just couldn't adjust to it. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was pretty bad. But um, Did they basically just pull him out then right then? No, so we, you know, we secured him. We did everything that we should. So when he was a heat casualty, you know, we gave him water and, you know, tried to make sure that he was fine. Um what was funny is that, well, not really funny. It was kind of an unfortunate reality that I think we all learned Dark from. Dark humor. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, uh, so he overheated and then we were trying to feed him water and they were like, okay, well, it's colder outside, so you should be fine. In this corner, he wasn't really pulling security. He was just kind of, you know, taking his place or whatever that he needed to be and watch watch himself and the medics were watching after him and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think he just immediately flipped and got cold way too fast because i mean we were talking oh, shit i mean i don't know probably close to zero degrees fahrenheit outside so it was super cold mm-hmm. um and so very quickly his body temperature basically was high and then dropped off and then almost became hypothermic or basically hypothermic um and we just kept him there and then you know when we exfilled or whatever um he just got on you know bird with us and yeah took off but so going back, so that explains um, kind of what Second Battalion does and like a couple kind of, of the missions that you're a part of. Um, going back to that transition of civilian life mm-hmm. was, I mean, I know from what I've heard, it can be very difficult for people that have obviously been exposed to that much trauma. Yeah. Um, some people, I feel like what's weird is that when you came back, maybe you're really good at decompartmentalizing a lot of things, but I never noticed anything with you. Like... Mm-hmm. And it's weird to even look for those things, but I, I just was almost hearing horror stories during those years where like the war was like really in the thick of it. You would just hear families and people coming home and it, I can imagine it just, it fucks you up. Yeah. So it's like, was that kind of an easy transition for you kind of going back or was it kind of like in a dark way, you kind of needed that adrenaline again and that camar- that camaraderie that you didn't have. Yeah. I, I think, um, Definitely, uh, you know, compartmentalizing things helps a lot. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of veterans are really good at it. And probably why a lot of veterans don't, you know, share their stories or, you know, don't even tell their family members or, you know, their closest loved ones really what they've done um, is because it's easier, I feel like, to not process everything you've been through in the previous years if you don't have to talk about it. Kind of like being a kid, like if you've been through some trauma as a kid, you almost want to shut that off and just keep living your life and not look back on it. Is it kind of similar? Yeah, absolutely. And so for some people, you know, 
I, and I don't want to speak for everybody. Everybody processes things different, but just from my perspective, what I would say is I, I feel like some people process it to where, you know, they went through some heavy shit and they say, well, hell yeah, I went through some heavy shit and they're excited to brag about it yeah, and yeah. share it with people. And, um, you know, they want to, they want to share it with the world and they don't care, you know, whether down the line that affects them or really on the inside, it is affecting them. And really they're just, you know, masking it with the, you know, the hyper masculinity or whatever it may be, or, you know, um, the braggadocious kind of personality, um, or just that's, that's what they are. That's, you know, who they are is they, they love it. They literally feed off of it, but then there's a complete different spectrum of people, you know, and you have a full spectrum, um, but you have a complete opposite spectrum of people who, you know, have seen some horrible things in war, you yeah. know, literally their, you know, their brothers and sisters die right in yeah. front of them. And, um, they decide to compartmentalize it. They put it off to the side. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. They don't even want to look at images that remind them of it. They have a hard time processing things that sound um, similar to what they heard overseas. And so, you know, there's again, a full spectrum. And I think I, I kind of fell probably somewhere in the middle is like, you know, I get to a point where I can trust somebody enough to share a little bit of, about what I've done, but, um, I definitely, for the most part, don't tell people everything I've done. Um, you know, again, going back to, you know, we've been childhood friends and yeah, you know, I don't we're, think I even know like a, even a scratch of it, to be yeah, honest. Like we're hardly scratching the surface of things I've told you, like mm -hmm. in this past week, you've learned or past couple of weeks or past couple of months or whatever, you've learned more about my military service than I ever shared in the last, gosh, what has it been? I guess 14 years. I think seeing photos. Um kind of open that up yeah because when we were going through and pulling out photos that we want to use for your um page in the book um i think that kind of like triggered an open conversation of talking about it but i also try and tread lightly about i want you to be as transparent and open as you want to be like i don't want to ask the weird questions or even put you in a situation where it feels like you have to almost dive into that. I feel like there's probably certain things like you said that you just shut off that you don't need to necessarily bring up. And then certain things you're like, Oh, maybe if I open up, it's going to help other veterans to kind of open up. Yeah. And that's obviously our mission um, as a company, but yeah, it's definitely interesting to hear more about it because as a civilian, you read about this, you see the news, but I don't think they portray it well enough. Yeah. Um, well, and going back to what I was saying, I, I feel like, you know, with, with everything honestly being polarized, I feel like you're getting one of two messages. Mm -hmm. Is somebody so broken and beat down from war that they've got insane PTS or PTSD and like they can't process the world around them and they're like a broken veteran. Yeah. Or they're like hyper, hyper masculine, like showing off to the world that they're a veteran and people are like, oh God, not this type of person. Which you see a lot more of that. Yeah. I well, I think it depends on what I think it depends on kind of where you're almost looking, I guess, okay. and what you surround yourself with. Um, like I've definitely seen both sides where some organizations highlight things and, and show that, you know, they, they feel like everybody's broken and they need to help everybody because every veteran's broken. Mm -hmm. Um, then there's other organizations that are like, no, if you're a veteran and you fought overseas, like you're instantly a badass. Like you are, you are the coolest of the cool. Like you belong to the elite club, which I think everybody should be involved in, in, 
in that club or whatever. Um, doesn't matter what branch of service you you served in. It doesn't matter necessarily what you did overseas, but the fact that you serve this country, I think, is enough of a qualifier for everybody. It's almost. Uh, I'm curious to uh, reuse that word broken. What you just said. I imagine too for the soldiers that let's just go with that term broken when they come back, they almost don't want to maybe accept or admit it. So when people are constantly like trying to help them, it's almost like a slap in their face. Like they almost don't want that help because they truly feel like there is nothing wrong with them or they're trying to really fight their own inner demons. And it's, I feel like it could be, maybe this is a bad example, but the only one I can go off of is like when I go out to, um, for instance, Northern Arizona and I spend time on the Navajo like uh, reservations out there and help cut horses and break and wild horses out there. It's a very similar community of people to where if you go onto a reservation and you see the poverty and the drug use and everything there, and you're like, Oh, I feel bad for these people. I want to help them out. How can I help you? They're like, get the fuck out of here. We don't want your help. And it's almost like you need to go into it. Like, I'm not trying to help you. You're just a human being. And I want to, you know, vibe with you. I want to, to be there and support you. And if you're a good person, I'm just going to treat you as such mm-hmm. and not really look at you as like this victim that needs help. Yeah. And maybe it's kind of similar, but no, there's a lot to that. So, um, like my core belief is, um, to help veterans most is to provide purpose. I mean, anytime that like you think from the time that you enlist, you know, you're going to basic training mm-hmm. um, or you're going to boot camp or whatever service you're in. Um, so you're getting trained, you're getting yelled at, screamed at, but you're being directed where to go. You're being told exactly what to do the entire time. Your purpose is that person screaming at you, telling you what to do. Eventually, you know, once you get through boot camp or basic training, uh, you go to your unit. Well, you always have leaders around you that are telling you, you know, what you need, what right looks like, what you need to do, you know, mm-hmm. how to turn left, how to you know, how to shoot, how to run, how to do all these different things. And that again is your purpose. Eventually you're going to war or you're supporting a war, whatever the case may be. Right. But your purpose is your job and to provide um, something in support of the war. Like once you come back from that and basically you're given all the freedom in the world to just reintroduce yourself into society. If you don't have a purpose, like you're looking for it and you're searching and there's plenty of opportunities for veterans out there that'll, you know, give them a handout or, you know, try. They think they're helping them. But ultimately, if you don't provide that purpose, you know, there's 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 nothing that's going to be long lasting about that Band-Aid, basically. So do you think that's what it is? And is that the difficult thing about transitioning back to civilian life is because there's a lack of purpose almost? Absolutely. I have a feeling. It's an interesting way of, of looking I, at it. I have a feeling and you know, this is speculation. I don't know. Everybody, again, everybody's story is going to be different, but I I truthfully believe just from talking to plenty of other veterans in the community, um, you know, listening to plenty of other veterans on different shows and podcasts and websites and things like that, reading their books, like there's a common theme between all of them is, you know, I found my purpose. I found what I needed to do. Um, or I didn't find my purpose and that's why I struggled. That's why I dealt with you know, drug addiction, or I dealt with, um, domestic abuse, or, you know, I went to jail or whatever it was because there was no purpose there. So to relate this into this combo, um, when you're actually in like 
a firefighter and you're overseas and you're experiencing a shit day in and day out, do you become kind of immune and like used to that? Like I imagine first getting shot at, you're like fucking puckered and it's terrifying. So it's like all hell. But like, do you, if you go through that every day, you become kind of numb to it, I would imagine. And then when you come back home, it's just like life is boring because there's not like this crazy adrenaline or this new mission or these, these new uh, things that you're exposed to. It's kind of like an every day is the same. Is that a better way of putting it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's really weird. And I feel like a lot of veterans that have been in combat would tell you this. Um, But oftentimes you go on deployment and yeah, it's an adrenaline rush. It's crazy. It's, um, but honestly, like your day is kind of mapped out for you almost. Yeah. Every mission is different. Every target's different. Mm -hmm. Every engagement is different. Um, but you know what you're getting into every single day. When you come back overseas, I feel like it's almost like you're in your flow. So, okay. Um, you know, uh, flow state basically is where you're only focused on one thing, all outside distractions basically around you seem to disappear. Totally. Um, and you're just in it. You're in whatever, you know, you're thinking about, well, I feel like the people who do the best overseas are in their flow state. You know, they have all their outside distractions take away, taken away. Um, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to, you know, the family members and wives and husbands that are back um, home that are not deployed overseas because they end up taking on a lot of the burden of the mm-hmm. day-to-day life back, uh, you know, um, uh, back away from war. But the people that are in war, you know, are basically there. They're focused on one thing, and that is to complete their mission. And that is it. And so, um, yeah, definitely that adrenaline rush and that constantly being in flow state when you come back, it destabilizes that mindset. Like you think completely differently. And, and, uh, oftentimes, like I was getting back to a lot of people who have been in combat would probably say, honestly, sometimes they miss it. Mm-hmm. And even I, miss I have it. heard that. And even I miss it. Like I miss plenty of aspects about it. And I, I think it is that, you know, you have one central purpose, one mission, um, and you know, it is an adrenaline rush, but you know, that you just are removing all other distractions out of the mm-hmm. way and you're focused on one specific thing. And I think that honestly opens you up to be like much better and much more proficient at what you're doing. So I think we naturally as a species are, are a violent species. Mm-hmm. Like we, I look at everything around us today, like whether we're so divided, um, you know, people are watching videos on people fighting each other. People are watching videos of people shooting each other and like, and then, you know, laughing or getting a rise out of it. It's almost like that's part of our DNA in a sense is, is fighting the brutality behind it. We were, I mean, if you want to go back, you know, uh, anthropologically, like we were a tribal, um, you know, society, like we were yeah, all, that's what I mean. all in tribes and it was, it was definitely like, we're not used to this, being able to talk to tribes across the world. Like, no. this is a new thing, um, but we want to all be secluded in our tribe. So I feel like that's where the division is coming is people are, you know, finding their tribe and they're stuck to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they want to fight anybody else that's against their tribe. And I can imagine like even being with a squad of other just high adrenaline men there where you're kicking down doors and you're like involved in a firefight or you're getting shot at and then all of a sudden it's like quiet and you return back to base it's like that adrenaline high is like gone and i can imagine like you don't like just calm down immediately 
like it probably has still gone through your veins for quite a bit of time after. And so, like you said, some people are addicted to that high. Look at UFC fighters, you know, like it's not just the money. They, they thrive on that, mm-hmm. of beating each other up and that feeling of that fear, but also that, that dominant kind of nature. Yeah, you definitely build um, a warrior's mindset, I guess, when you're constantly in, you know, in combat, you're, you're deploying, whether it was once or, you know, 15, 20 times that I, you know, know several people who've done. 15 times? Yeah. No shit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know people that have deployed now, I think, you know, 17, 18, 19 times. Damn. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you build that warrior mindset and it's. It's interesting, you know, I think there's definitely an evolution in your mind. Like, so when you're younger, you know, early or late teens, early twenties, things like that, like you're definitely much more strung out. You're, you're processing things at much, at a much higher rate. Like you're, you're just thinking about, well, you're, you're thinking about a lot of things, but you're not processing them. Like you're not fully processing them. So I definitely remember coming back from, you know, my first few deployments and processing things completely different from mm-hmm. my last couple of deployments. Um, well, you're maturing and, and growing older. I mean, I remember absolutely. you and I, like, do the shit that you and I used to do. Like, when Jackass first came out, we were, like, jumping off roofs into bushes, and you were speeding in your truck, and I was holding onto the hood at, like, 40, 50 miles an hour, <laughs> running naked down the highway at night. Like, all that shit, you felt so alive. Then you would take a hit and fall down and get right back up, and it was almost like, you had this constant adrenaline and energy to where even now going from fuck, what was that? 15, 16 years old up to almost 31. I've noticed a significant change like biologically and just mentally to where I'm like, I can't keep up with that stuff anymore. So I imagine these young soldiers that enlist at what, 18 and then literally you go through boot camp. What is boot camp? About three months. Yeah. It depends on the path you take, but, um, like, so I think if you go through, you know, the most basic training, I think it's nine, nine weeks. Okay. So, yeah. I think it's nine or 12. So, weeks so let's like hypothetically say three to six months at the most. Mm-hmm. And then literally going overseas and fighting at like 19 or just before 19, you're still so young and fragile and not knowing a whole lot in the world to where literally that's all you have going for yourself is that adrenaline. Yeah. I mean, my first deployment was when I was 18. That's I know crazy. plenty of other people who were like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's definitely, a. I I think it's a recalibration that, you know, your mind never gets an opportunity to do. Um, and then that time when you separate from service, like, like going back to what you're saying, like, what is it like when you finally get out? What were those, you know, first few months, like when you first get out, mm-hmm. you know, part of me was like finally able to relax. I kind of soaked it in for a little bit. You're not on edge the whole day. A lot of edge. I just kind of, you know, just relaxed, took things slow for a while. I went to college. Um, you know, that was probably the hardest part is dealing with a bunch of like, honestly, punk college kids that had no care. Like, you know, their parents or mm-hmm. the government was paying for their college education or they were racking up student loans and they had no idea what that implication was going to be for them. They haven't seen the same shit They just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's frustrating to see that. And you're like, I don't know, part of, I feel like a lot of veterans and myself, I, I built up a kind of a pent up little bit of anger for them, Mm -hmm. but then I also, you know, have some empathy and I understand that they didn't have the same experience as me. They probably didn't have the same upbringing as me. They, you know, went through a completely different experience. And so, 
it took me a couple months to to connect that to realize you mm-hmm. know they went through a different experience than I did. I can't hold, you know, any sort of grudge or be upset about, you know, how they're reacting to their college experience versus how I am acting in college. Well, you're, I think you're better than most people with that. I mean, I know you grew up in the military coming with your dad being in the Air Force, but it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, if I see myself doing that, like coming home, you know, after six years and six deployments and being exposed to that shit and just... uh I almost think that it matures you in a totally different way, but a much deeper way than a lot of society uh, has anymore. You know, we look at uh, mature status is based on education or it's based on, you know, money or what job title we have. But there's so many other avenues I think that maturity comes from. And so I think that knowing me going into a college and sitting in a, at a desk or whatever and next to just a bunch of like kids. I would probably be the same way where I'm just like, fuck these guys. Like they don't know shit. They haven't seen half the things that I've seen. Yeah. I've at least been to fucking the Middle East and Europe and they, you know, stay in the U S but I think, I, I just think it's interesting that, uh, that difference of kind of being deployed and then coming home, you know, I think each person and each veteran has their own story and their own feeling. And with that, I guess with that said, was there, um, I think back then, from what you and I have researched with other veterans, that there wasn't a whole lot of organizations that veterans could sign up to be a part of that helped them cope with that stress coming back home. With you being a little later um, of deployments, was there anything like that when you came home? Was it like Wounded Warriors? Was there anything around that you kind of signed up on right away? So I think there's multiple things that played into my experience. Like one of them was I was in Boone, North Carolina, which um, I went to Appalachian State University and there was a, um, uh, student veterans organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was student veterans association and they were incredible. Like one of the guys that was the president of it, um, he's one of my good friends. We still talk today. Uh, but I never became part of that organization. Like, um, as far as like bigger name organizations, they just weren't around. Like, okay. you know, I didn't have, uh, you know, I live in Raleigh now. There's plenty of organizations in the Raleigh area that I can get involved with. Um, but in Boone, you know, it was really the student student veter, veterans association or mm-hmm. the local VFW. And nothing against VFWs because they've done incredible things for veterans. Um, but, you know, I went to my local VFW one time and walked in and I was like, you know what, this is a completely different generation than the generation I'm in. Yeah. And so it was just, you know, it was it was awkward to me. And so. Um, I didn't find that instant connection to any other veteran groups. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, I didn't give myself the opportunity, but I also didn't seek out, uh, any opportunities for, um, being involved in any sort of veteran organizations. Granted, nobody really reached out to me to try and, you know, connect and be like, Hey, you should be part of this. Right. Um, there was one organization uh, that I actually did get involved in before I left the army, which was uh, the Killer Man Sons, which is a is a Ranger motorcycle um, club. Oh, that's cool. They they actually do a lot. It's a, they're an incredible organization. They raise a lot of money for um, fellow Rangers, but also just veterans in general. Is um, it like a patched up club? Yeah. Okay. And uh, again, they're they're national now. I mean, they have, um, gosh, I don't even know how many chapters. Probably like close to 20 now no kidding yeah is it just here in north carolina no so 
it's all over. The first two was a, a national uh, chapter, and then there was a chapter in um, Tacoma, Washington, which is what I helped start up. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's it's really blown up since then. But being in Boone, again, like I was part of that, that club, but um, I was away from the Central Club. You know, they were out of Fayetteville. Um, so I, I moved from the Tacoma Club. There was one that started up um, what they call the Sand Hills, which is in the Fayetteville, Fayetteville and um, Fayetteville area, Fort Bragg area. So you're probably like at least three, four hours away. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't stay well connected um, just being, you know, so far away and going to school full time. It was, it was really difficult. So ultimately, you know, I, I left the club um, and that was really the only veteran organization that I was a part of. And Honestly, probably, you know, once I left that club, I, I definitely looking back on it, see that there was like a, a slump kind of, I, I, I was more of a recluse. Like mm-hmm. I didn't share any stories. And I told you, you know, earlier yeah. on the podcast, like I, I don't like sharing any stories with people that I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but I, mean, I you shouldn't have to. No, but I mean, I like. I went to school and there's some people that you can instantly tell and can talk to and you know they're a veteran. Um, I kind of purposely played down a lot of things so that I wasn't easily identifiable as a veteran. Well, it's even it's even like you said, like uh, we're telling your wife, you know, she'll uh, try and get you to like use the, uh, you know, veteran, what is it, like parking spaces or if you can use like veteran discounts or you can do yeah. anything like that, which I feel like you should, you know, like that's. You served your time. I feel like you should get those things. But even you, you're just more humble in the sense that you're like, I don't really want to. Yeah. And maybe that's just who you are as a human. It's not really in a sense that because you feel guilty doing it. Um, I, what's interesting is what you were saying earlier is how there's kind of a macho type of veterans that go out there and broadcast everything they've done. What's kind of shocked me is like some of the people that I've met or you've watched movies on, they brag about how many kills they've had and stuff like that. And then you have this whole other polar opposite side of it. It's like, yeah, no one does that. Like, that's just wrong to say those kinds of things. I'm kind of curious that the people that come back, do you think that half those people that kind of have the macho mentality really have their own struggles going on? And that's how they cope with it is by acting kind of macho. Or do you think that really like they're not affected at all? I don't want to speculate because again, I I think it is, I don't want to speculate on an individual's, you know, perspective or what kind of struggles they may or may not be going through. Um, But I I definitely feel like, you know, again, it's a spectrum. So either personally, I feel like if they have been through a lot, either Mm -hmm. they're putting it off and they're masking it with, you know, whatever else they're doing in life or maybe they have a really good purpose. You know, they, they have a strong purpose and, you know, part of their story of, you know, what they went through is providing um, an opportunity for other people to give their purpose. So like maybe somebody sharing their story and sharing a lot of what they did go through. And yes, they're giving off this macho personality or and persona. Um, but that is giving a lot of, I guess, fuel to other veterans or fuel to other people. And it's like, I can see that point of it. Okay. You know what I mean? Like there other people are like, damn, he did awesome overseas that he you know, came back and really took, you know, took the bull by the horns basically and and really just, you know, took advantage of the experience that he's been through and he's inspiring other people to do the same thing or she's inspiring the same person 
for other people to do the same thing. Like, yeah, I definitely think there's those people, but there's two sides to it. I think yeah. that like there's the side of people that can have that macho personality to where there's other people are like, fuck yeah, like I love that, um, that go getter mentality. And then there's other people that maybe relate more to the people that are more open and vulnerable um, mm-hmm. with their emotions that can actually talk about the things that they've been through and show that they've had a hard time dealing with it. You have more of this side that can have that more empathetic yeah. kind of community of people. So I, I definitely get both. I just wasn't sure if it was kind of like a, a way of diffusing their internal struggles or if there is just two different types of people. That can I, I think that I, I think there's probably both types, honestly. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I would imagine that a lot of those people that get a lot of recognition hopefully are, you know, fueled by, again, because a lot of those people that are getting a lot of recognition and things like they have a ton, a huge veteran community behind mm-hmm. them that are thanking them and saying, God, you, you know, you're helping me. You are literally um, you know, driving me day to day, like your message is resonating with me so well that like you're giving me a purpose to, you know, to keep going or whatever. And that is fantastic. That's their purpose. Exactly. And that's fueling them. That's giving them purpose. They're not thinking twice about, you know, the things that they went through because they know that, yes, I had to go through some hard times, but that's to help somebody else through their hard time. Gotcha. Okay. And so I, I definitely think there's, there's two, two probably two spectrum you know two different areas of people is people who are processing it that way and understand that there is a purpose and they're providing you know purpose to others Mm -hmm. or you know they are masking their own internal struggles and it just hasn't you know boiled over it hasn't it hasn't percolated to the surface yet yeah what what do you think uh i don't know why it's just popping in my head what do you think the most like I guess from when civilians think about uh, war or they think about what it's like to be enlisted or just, you know, go through boot camp or whatever, what do you think is like the main thing that most civilians don't know about it? Like, is there any like kind of like funny times like going through boot camp or funny times overseas that like civilians would just have no idea about what even happens over there? Um. I, yeah, I'm sure there's a few, but I'm sure there's quite a few, but, uh, probably the biggest one is you're going to have to be comfortable, like shitting in front of other people. Really? (laughs) (laughs) And not like Like, in a hole, like literally. No, yeah. In a hole. Like, you you know, you, you, there's been plenty of opportunities where you have to, you know, make a slit trench and take a shit and bury it with the shovel and, you know, all those things that you take for granted and. And your team can't keep going on. They're going to wait for you. You're like out in the mountains and you got to take a shit. So I would say luckily for me personally, like within second range of battalion, I've never had to take a shit on objective because typically every target that I've been on has been, I think at most 36 hours. Actually, I take that back. I did have to take a shit one time. That's how long like the, uh, the missions go for. Long, that's the longest one I've been okay. on. Typically, day to three um, days, basically, is what you're looking at. No, 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 no. Typically, for us, like we're going in hard charging as fast as we can. We get in, we grab, or you know, you know, we grab, or you know, all of our missions are kill capture. So either you grab the dude or whatever you have to do. Um, do sensitive site exploitation, so you gather a bunch of evidence or whatever you need, uh, and then you're out like as okay. fast as you can. So I mean, I've been on targets where literally we're in and out in 45 minutes. How many of those like missions did you do? So the first 
two deployments I was on in Missoula um, was in 2007 and 2008. Um, and I think in both of those were uh, around 90 day rotations. Yeah. And I think both of them, we exceeded over 100 missions. I think one of them, we did like 140 missions in 90 wow. days. Um, so we were going out, you know. You're talking every at, day. Oh, yeah, every day. But we were going out at least once a day, um, several times a day, most days. Uh, some days we do three, sometimes four hits. There's that much time for that many missions? Like, what is, like, is a mission basically just to go out there and find, like, during that time, weapons of mass destruction, find intel for higher um, target people or is it literally just going out there and trying to find these higher targets like is there missions for everything or like i'm just kind of curious like how you can spend that much time going on missions if there's that much to do yeah without going like too much into what like the way we selected missions but um basically it was any of those things that might have popped up so okay Again, whatever, you know, our intel classified as a high-value target or a high-value associate, mm -hmm. um, then we were going after them. Gotcha. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes it was uh, a matter of opportunity. So, you know, maybe a guy was hiding for days and he wasn't showing up, you know, quote-unquote on the grid. Like, we yeah. had no idea where he was and then he would pop up and we were like, well, we got to go now. To grab him before he fucking disappeared yeah, exactly gotcha. and so it was a lot of that um and so it was it was really rapid you know out the door we if you know if we were at the chow hall or whatever and we were across the base the other side um and we got a notification that we had to go we were literally sprinting back throwing on our kit and we were out the door like this is like whack-a-mole on steroids yeah absolutely i mean we were pop up go back into hiding as fast as we could get out the door we would be out the door um oftentimes like our upper leadership they wouldn't they'd never leave our little camp they would never leave our compound because they had to be ready for the mission plan for it and then you know me at the time i was a private and a specialist so um, you know, I was just basically taking orders, whatever you told me to do. That's where I was going. That's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, most of the time upper leadership was, you know, staying back on the camp, ready to plan for the mission. As soon as it would come up, they would plan and, you know, basically as, as fast as they could as with as much safety as they could, you know, assure. And then we'd be out the door. Yeah. And it, it's kind of, a so during boot camp, obviously you're just yelled at all the time and basically strip you down and create a whole new version of yourself. Is it still kind of like that when you're out of boot camp? Like, is there still people screaming at you or is it kind of a little bit more like relaxed in a sense? So Ranger Regiment definitely has, and I, I don't know how things are now. Things change all the time and I'm sure things were harder before my time. But um, when you come to Ranger Regiment, so to go kind of into the process of how you get into regiment, um, you go to basic training, you go to airborne school today. It's actually a little bit different, but at, during my time, you go to basic training, you go to airborne school. And then I went to the Ranger indoctrination program, which is basically like selection. Mm -hmm. Um, it's called Ranger and selection, uh, program now or process, um, RASP now. Um, so you go through that program as a selection program. I think it's 12 weeks. I think it's 12 weeks now. Maybe it's a little bit less than that. I, I can't remember, but. Um, anyways, you go through that, you get selected, you go to a battalion. Well, you don't have a ranger tab yet. And a ranger tab still holds a lot of weight. 
So you go through selection, you get a ranger scroll, um, which scroll means like you're in special operations, but then you're there anywhere from, you know, a few months to mm-hmm. could honestly be up to a year or longer. Um, then eventually if you have proven yourself, then you go to ranger school, okay. which is a leadership uh, course that the army gives. And that's where you get your ranger tab. So there's a lot to it. Man. There's a lot to it. Well, in between that time, between you coming to Ranger Battalion, getting your scroll, and until you go and get your tab and come back, if you are a tabless, tabless ranger, like you basically are like a peon. Like you can get smoked, you get tasked with all the, you know, garbage duties and things like that that you don't want to do. Um, so there's definitely that like uh, hard charging mentality where people are screaming at you like. I can't count the number of times I wax the floors at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. Really? Yeah. Um, like, done all those different things, you know, that you hear about that people had to go through, um, you know, whether it was in basic training or once they were assigned to their unit. So, until I went to ranger school, that's very much what it was like for me. And then after, it's almost like it's just your job and your responsibility to almost listen after that. So like when you get deployed, you just have missions, you have a briefing and it's like, okay, if I get this shit done, there's not really people yelling at you anymore because they yeah. trust you understand exactly like what they need you to do. So definitely as a private deployment to your best time of your, like uh best period of time in your experience. Is that the most time. fun when you're like a private? Well, there's a lot of things. So like, I'd say majority of the time, uh, I, I would argue probably 99% of the time, the smoking and the, um, what people, some people would classify as hazing, but I don't, it's just a, you know, whatever it is, but just the, the smoking, the pushups, you know, the physical exertion that you went through yeah. back, you know, in uh, stateside, you don't necessarily go through that at all overseas because again, you have one focus, that's the mission. Um, they don't you want know, to distract you from that. You don't want to distract you. You don't want to wear down your body either. Yeah. Like you want to be, you know, peak physical fitness. You don't want people to be tired when they're going out on objective or whatever. So all of that like goes away on deployment. So like with you and I both being uh, like bow hunters with deer, obviously out here in North Carolina, it's uh, a lot different than doing the hunts in California. And I'm no expert, but just from learning from uh, other hunters out there doing those like, you know, high altitude or extensive hikes. I imagine it's, it's very similar in a sense of like when you just talked about eight to 10,000 in elevation, are you guys doing like crazy intensive hikes every day? Or is it kind of just hiking one day and then you're setting up kind of camp for a few days on a mission so in Afghanistan, it was still similar kind of objectives where it was, you know, it wasn't nightly. I would definitely say it was less than that, but um, let's say every other night we would go out. Um, but our objectives were either walk in to the objective and it could be anywhere from, I think the furthest we walked was like 12 or 15 kilometers. What was that uh, miles again? Uh, was so it about be nine to ten? Uh, what is that? One point six kilometers. So yeah, I guess it would have been, you know, I think at most 10, 10 miles. Okay, that we walked in. Um, Still fucking then, long. With yeah, it's a long equipment. way. All your gear, you know, through the elevation, um, up and down, literally mountainsides. Um, it definitely smokes you. And then, uh, I guess, like we would go to objective and you know do what we need to do and, and leave immediately, pretty much. So it's the same. Same sort of sequence. 
we did have one mission, I guess. I, I take back what I said before. So I think the longest one that we had was, I guess, a, a two or three day stint on the side of a mountain, um, basically pulling security for a, a cop that was uh, being like exfiltrated. Basically, yeah. they were completely pulling up all of camp like and moving it. They were, they were moving it. So when that happened, it provided a really good opportunity for the Taliban to attack. Um, mm. just because you can literally see helicopters coming in day after day, pulling up loads and leaving. And like, that's a sitting target. So we more or less, um, it was, it was kind of interesting. So we, we more or less pulled security, but we were prepared because we knew there were Taliban forces on the other side of the mountain. We just basically secured the top of that mountain waiting for them. Um, Unfortunately, like we never, well, fortunately, but unfortunately, I guess, depending on what your mindset is, we never really got into a firefight. There was um, definitely where we dropped ordinance on them. Like we finally saw them coming um, and we just, you know, called it in, called it in, blew them all up. Like, no shit. Yeah. So we never had to do anything. (laughs) Is there, I know you're still under contract and you can't um, share a whole lot, but is there like one particular kind of mission that, still um it's like memorable to you like whether it be kind of like a a more triggering mission or it be like a fun mission that you did like is there kind of one that really speaks out to you that you like remember vividly yeah my very first i remember no every, i remember everything about it absolutely um it was kind of crazy so you know majority of the time we would operate at night mm-hmm. um and oftentimes it's you know when people are either getting ready to go to bed or they were in bed um, and at the time, like I was a private and I think I was one of the lightest people on my squad at the time. I was probably, I don't know, 165, 170 yeah. pounds, like soaking wet. 18 years old. 18 years old. And, um, you know, with my kit and everything, yeah, maybe I was pushing 200, but I was still one of the lightest people on the squad. Um, so when you get to these compounds, you're definitely trying to spring the element of surprise on them. Um, you know, you want to have the tactical advantage of clearing that building. Mm -hmm. and so you don't want them to know you're there at all like if you can catch them on surprise yeah if you can clear the building without them knowing that you're there like that's honestly the best um that is the best technical advantage you can you can have going into that mission so we show up we had a place that we're we're uh gonna do a raid on we get outside of the compound we're stacked up um the gate's locked so we decide we're gonna jump the wall basically and it's I don't know, probably a, a 10, 12 foot wall or something like okay, that. So it's just completely gated off like compound. Yeah. And it's a, it's a mud wall. So it's a thick, you know, wall basically. Just all dirt. Yeah. And I like, they were smart. So a lot of them, they, they also had problems with crime. So it's mm-hmm. a normal nation, you know, a lot of people think of Iraq as being like super third world and stuff, but you know, prior to the war, they were actually an excelling nation like they were on their way to becoming a first world nation really um, yeah absolutely okay. and uh you know they were an economic power because they had access to oil and um a lot of other things so like there's parts of iraq that even though we went into it looked nasty and dirty and stuff like that you could tell it was like a, a, a metro like metro area okay like buses bus stations like it was hopping anything um anyways but at the top of the chick wall, no chick plays. <laughs> no chick plays. Maybe maybe there is now, but I don't know. Um, I didn't know if there was chick play back then. Was there? Probably not. 2007? I don't know. I'm sure it was around. I'm sure it was. There might have. There had to have been at least. Yeah, probably out here on the East Coast. Yeah. But, um, 
Anyways, yeah, we get to this compound and uh, we're stacked up and they're like, all right, Blakely, get over the wall. And I'm like, uh, okay. And mind you, this You're is the first, first going over. This is the first building I've ever cleared. Like, this is, this is it. Like, this is the first place I've ever been to. Everything else up to this point has been training. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, they get up on the wall, they pull security, but on the first one down. Um, and I, you know, you immediately get inside compound. You want to be in the shadows. Well, their lights, like on their house, were still on. And this lady walks out of the back of the house to like dust off a carpet or something like that. And I'm like four or five feet from her. I'm not far from her at all. And she had no idea I was there. Didn't even see you. Didn't see me at all. Didn't hear me. Had no idea. Because you have uh, like nods, like night vision. Yeah. Right? And that's why it's probably obviously bright and those lights. Yep. So you're just hiding in the shadows waiting for her to like yep. see if she notices you. Or... So what, yeah. So what we did, yeah, I was waiting for her to notice me because that, that would have been the immediate trigger to just go. And like, so, and like, you're obviously not going into clear places and like off everybody in there. You're, ba- you're still kind of going yeah. in there and like maybe, um, going our, in there and quieting people down. Yeah. So our rules of engagement, super strict overseas, like. Only taking out targets if it's that kind of scenario. It's it's really you're only taking out targets if they present a threat. Okay. Um, like you don't even you don't just see somebody's face and shoot them because you know they're the target. Like you have to have a a threat presented to you, and that's even you know in the middle of a war. Like there are very strict rules of engagement. Like if you decided to shoot somebody who did not present a threat, like you could you could be prosecuted. So with her, for instance. If she spotted you, and I want you to continue the story, but um, just for the sake of entertainment, if she spotted you, like, what do you guys usually do at that point? Do you apprehend her? Do you try and quiet her down? Do you basically pull back the mission because she may go inside and tell everybody? No, so we separated all the, uh, what we call MAMs or military age males. Mm -hmm. And then all the women and children were separated. Women and children usually get put... Um, like in one room. So you would just grab her right there and try to silence her? Not silence her. No, no, no. Um, definitely not. Like you would definitely, you would want to shush them and like try and quiet them down or whatever. But that, you know, they're, I mean, yeah. they're freaking out. People oh, totally. are in their, you know, in their house with guns. Like, of course they're going to freak out and scream. And they obviously know you're American. Yeah. So it's, it's not like you could really quiet them down. It's like at that point. At that point, when you're identified and people start screaming and stuff, like you're clearing that building as fast as you can. Like you're going room to room, clear. Sticking with the mission and just going. Absolutely. Um, and so, not to, uh, you know, not giving any more TTPs away, uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, but. Um, is that kind of like, uh, what does that basically mean? Basically, like you can't talk about certain things. I don't want to talk about certain things okay. because it gives the opportunity for our enemy to learn them. Gotcha. And that's what the TTP is. Yeah. Okay. Like I'd rather not talk about some of those things. I don't blame Some you. people will some people may absolutely listen to talk about it and be like, well, some people may listen to this and be like, it doesn't matter. You can talk about that. It doesn't, you know, it's written in our books and stuff and anybody can find those online, which is absolutely true. But personally, I am in the mindset of, you know, there could be the wrong person listening at any given time. Blue slip sync yes. Exactly. And so you just don't want to give the opportunity. You don't want to give the enemy an upper hand. So anyways, um, so yeah, so this lady walks out, she, you know, is waving off her carpet. And then by that point that she was like finished and turning around, what was funny is she even stood at the doorway 
and was talking to the, there was a whole group of people inside talking to the people inside. Um, and then at that point, finally, some other people like from my squad were jumping over and come over the, um, come over the wall as and well. Still didn't notice. Still didn't notice. Wow. Um, I mean, we were, we were pretty quiet. We were pretty good at what we did, but, yeah. um, yeah, we finally got over the wall and then I remember like I was the first, I think I was the first person and maybe I was the second, but, um, because I was right there, I think I was the first person and I think my team leader pushed me. Um, because <laughs> again, first mission, I didn't know what I was doing and he just shoved me in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went in there and I remember I, I, not on purpose, but it is like, you're trying to get in there as fast as you can. I remember shoving this lady and I kind of felt bad about it afterwards, but I shoved this lady poor lady um, she was fine she like <laughs> there was a couch right there and a bunch of blankets so she like fell into that but i still kind of felt bad um but cleared the rest of the house like as fast as we could guy we were looking for wasn't there mm. um and that probably happens a lot i can imagine happens a lot um at that point you know nothing had really happened you know we do uh, some investigation on the site to make sure that you know the person we're looking for isn't in fact there nothing nefarious is there that we're you know investigating or whatever um and then at that point we were like all right we're clearly at the wrong place um and then we go and we had a second location that we thought this person was at so we went there and um that's where it kind of got crazy um so we show up and this time we knew that they probably knew because we had make, made some rockets. Our vehicles were parked outside for, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, something like that. And so they knew we were there for sure. At um, least in that area. Because yeah. I can imagine you're like driving the trucks right to the front door. You're still kind of walking on foot a little ways. Yep. But they obviously know you're in the area. People are making phone calls. They're letting them know. Yep. And so we uh, we show up to this next location. Uh, the gate's locked again. But this time... You know, we didn't want to give the the tactical advantage of, you know, maybe we do make some noise or maybe they do see us coming over the wall or whatever the case may be. Um, so we blew the front gate open, like we breached it. Um, what do you guys use, like C4 or something? Yeah, different, various different things, but okay. yeah, some explosives. Um, and uh, then it's loud, then it's like, yeah, then you're going as fast as, like, as, fast as you can. Um, so we get there, uh, we're clearing like one of the first few rooms and the second room we go into, um, a dude runs at us with a knife and my team leader and squad leader and I were in there, team leader and squad leader took him down. Um, and then also like when somebody's po- still posing a threat, like you want to make sure, I guess, that yeah. they're not going to continue to pose a threat. Um, so I put another one in him and then, Oh, you personally did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, went through the rest of the compound. Luckily we were as fast as we were and we were quiet enough, I guess, at the adjacent building that, um, they definitely had weapons there. There were the people that we were looking for. Um, uh, and so from there, you know, we balled them up That's the guys that we could and took them, you know, to jail basically. And went from like complete kind of silence and like nothing there to then escalating like and i can imagine it's like kind of like that for a lot of other 
uh, people that have been over there where it's yeah. like every night may be boring or it may just be clearing rooms and nothing's there until you finally get that one. So I, I think back to the, the reason why that's so memorable to me is there's a lot of different reasons. You know, that was my first mission that I was on. That was the first time I pulled a trigger overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of different things. Um, but I think for me, what impacted me the most, like thinking back to that is like, we went into a house that, you know, these people were basically having like a family party, a family get together, whatever. They were being completely peaceful. They were, you know, just everyday people, you know, just having their everyday lives living right next to, you know, the shitheads. Yeah. And you guys ruined the karaoke party. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it's, it's crazy to me to think like, you know, if, if something like that were similar in any other country here, even here in America, like it, it would be insane. And it does happen sometimes, you know, where, you know, neighbors find out that their neighbor that they've known their whole lives is crazy and has guns in their basement mm-hmm. and like killed their parents or something like that. It's just, it's insane to me. And like, when I, I think back to that, like you were talking about jumping over that wall, it was so peaceful and calm. Like mm-hmm. it was surreal. Like everything that happened there, and then immediately abrupt 180, you get brought back. Like, no, this is actually war. Like, and when we're first mission, you're like shots are fired too. Yeah, which is crazy. It's just I don't know. It was um, it was one that I I will I'll never forget. Like that was. Is there with that being your best? And again, if you can talk about it, great. If not, no worries. Was there like a worst mission? Like that was kind of your best, your favorite one. Was there one that really was like your you just hated it? And you can kind of hate it for any reason. Yeah, I don't know. My, I guess not my most hated mission, but my most hated day overseas. Um, Need a drink. Yeah, yeah. Take your time. <clears throat> and we can move on to it. You just let me know. No, it's good. Um, so my, my most hated day overseas was uh, was my last deployment. Um, and I know, like, and it's gonna be hard. I, I, it's interesting because I think it's like I've known you for since our childhood, so I'm trying not to go down a sensitive avenue. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting seeing like, you know, this side of you and, and kind of talking about this topic. Cause like you said, you've kind of kept it in for so long and haven't really opened up or, or talked about it. Yeah. And I, and I can imagine it's, I, I keep saying, I can imagine, I'm just trying to put myself in those shoes, um, that a lot of other people are probably dealing with similar, you know, where they're just. Oh yeah. Where it's it almost like a word comes up or like you said, a sound or a conversation and mm-hmm. it just triggers that. Um, so again, I don't want to push the agenda. It's, you know, it can be, a, it can be totally a different story that was worse. Yeah. No, no, no. We can, we can potentially circle back to it. I, I think, you know, what I will say is like, I think what triggers it the most is like, Seeing their faces. Yeah. And this was yeah. your last appointment there? Mm-hmm. So this was like, when this was, when did you get out? Because I know you went to Oh, school. this would have been 2011. 
So I got out in 2012. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was October 2011. Was this Iraq at the time, then? No, this was in Afghanistan. Afghanistan okay. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in Kandahar. Um, yeah, I got to... Um, yeah, one of the, like, his KIA bracelet over there. Um, here in your office? Yeah. Oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah so, October 22nd, 2011. That's probably, I don't know. That the worst day. Worst day of a lot of people's lives. October 22nd. Hmm. And we'll keep his name off for yeah. various reasons. But it was do you think it was, and again, I don't want to get deep into it, but do you think it was that part of the mission, like you just said, with seeing his face um, when it was a KIA? Or do you think there was, um, is there other parts of the mission that you can kind of talk about? Because obviously we know what happened. No, I, I can talk about it. So uh, basically October 22nd, um, 2000. 11 uh other platoon that we were deployed with uh went out on an objective and uh basically they walked into a compound that was completely booby trapped like everywhere really um, yeah like everything was booby trapped and they uh just bombs everything all around it yeah like okay. so pressure plate ids um basically where they bury something in the ground mm -hmm. so you can't really see it um you step on, you know, the earth that's covering it. Well, when you connect that circuit, it blows up. That's what happens with like a lot of convoys then. Is they hit a pressure? Uh, or is pr it like pressure plate. It depends. Like, okay. there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, they, so they went on, on objective. Um, I remember sitting in the, uh, in the talk, basically, our operations center and, and watching the objective. I remember... Watching them initially walk on, and I was like, oh, nothing's happening, because that's always what happens. Nothing really happens. Yeah. And then, so, I think I walked out of the hall or something like that, and I I basically walked outside of the building, and then um, came back in, and everybody was spun up. Like, the whole place lit up. Like, everybody was sprinting around everywhere, like, screaming, people on the phone, like, all kinds of stuff was going on. Um, basically from there, like I was watching it from, uh, like surveillance, basically, uh, you know, aerial surveillance. Uh, oh, so you're watching okay. So I was back at the cop. I was is, not there. Is that like a drone or something that's flying? Yeah. Around? So okay. I, I was, I was watching it all, you know, from there. Um, but then, you know, they basically, you can see it all happen before your eyes and you see, you know, the first explosion happened. I, I came into the, uh, uh, into the talk. I didn't see that first explosion. Um, but then I come in and then I see, you know, the subsequent explosions and things going on. Um, well, from there, we're all spun up. We're ready to go. Like I'm getting everybody else. I, I remember um, basically having somebody else run out because at the time I was a squad leader. So I remember telling one of my team leaders or something like that to basically get everybody geared up and ready to go just in case. Because um, we were, you know ready to go be a quick reaction force, like go support them however we needed to. Right. Um, so we were trying to figure that out. And um, ultimately we didn't go on objective, but you know, as soon as they came back, we were more or less like receiving them kind of as casualties. Um, 
And like, I thank God. And I, I know there's so many other people that, you know, had to see much worse than I did, but I, I thank God I didn't have to see, you know, the aftermath of, of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember my first sergeant, he, he went and, and went to the, uh, medical center basically when everybody was coming in and I remember him coming back and he was just pale like completely pale in the face like from the one guy that he saw or was it was it several there's three okay um and he was like we heard over the radio who the casualties were but you don't know like how bad it is um so I came back and, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how they can help out and everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical person, so I, I'm not helping in that regard. Uh, you know, people from that platoon that were coming back, obviously were shell shocked and everything else, right. everything they had just seen. Um, so I told them, I was like, don't worry about anything. I'll handle everything. Um, you know, our platoon was trying to help them as much as they could. Um, and I remember what, uh, they asked, um, somebody asked basically for somebody to volunteer was to, to more or less take, uh, accountability of all their gear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that was definitely the most difficult thing to see is yeah. like all their gear tattered up, like, you know, you, you can know, just imagine, you know, everything you can imagine that you have to, you know you know, see and feel and all that stuff from somebody who's basically, you know, been blown up or multiple people who have been blown up. And so they abort a mission basically when that happens. Yeah. They, they pulled out immediately. Out. I mean, th- so you need God, the hardest part, I can't remember his name and I wish I could. And uh, hopefully maybe somebody who listens to this podcast who went through the same thing and we can remember and, and highlight his story because he was an absolute hero. He was a, uh, EOD guy and uh, he he got hit by one of the blasts too but he wasn't immediately on it like he I think he ended up with like a, a spiral fracture like up his leg or something like that mm-hmm. because it was bad but it, it wasn't bad enough to where he couldn't walk or whatever mm-hmm. um, and he ended up on his fucked up leg clearing the route basically for everybody else to, to get follow. back to get back to a clear space to where they can get airlifted out. Yeah. Um, Cause they basically, I imagine with three casualties or even three wounded in a second, it's almost like you gotta like basically call an extraction and get them out of there and get them to medical as fast as possible. Yep. Interesting. Let, let's, um, thanks for sharing that. Like, I think you've told me more than I think I heard from you about this topic. I kind of want to like, uh go into a different angle um and so basically after six years and you retired when you because you lived in boone or you moved from washington north carolina and did you retire in north carolina or you already retired from washington i separated separate retired yeah retired like if you're medically retired or you like do your 20 years or whatever right you you didn't reinvest then so that was again uh, i think maybe another reason why i was connected to the military, I guess, for the most part, for another two years. I actually served in the North Carolina National Guard for two years as well. 
um, as of the 139th um, Regiment. Basically, we trained OCS, uh, so Officer Candidate School okay. Cadets, for the Eastern Region. Um, and that was a interesting experience, but it was it was fun. Like uh, I don't know, for I feel like that was probably the best experience for getting out of Ranger Regiment and then just going into that sort of yeah. environment because National Guard and regular Army are already very different, but then National Guard and like Special Operations so different, just night and day, <laughs> just night and day. Because what is the role as National Guard is to help assist in like national emergencies or if something like that were to come up, but for. For the regiment that I was part of, like it, a lot would have happened had to happen before I would have been called up to help in like national or uh, natural disasters and things like that, states mm-hmm. of emergency. Um, because again, we were a training regiment. We trained officer candidate schools, so like um, or officer candidates. If they, you know, a lot would have to happen for us to be recalled. There's plenty of other uh, regiments and battalions and companies and like stuff like that throughout the state. Yeah. Who would be called up first? Um, but yeah, so I did that for two years. Um, and I going back to what I was saying, like I was part of that motorcycle club. And then also being part of the National Guard, I feel like that kept a little bit of the military mm-hmm. mentality in me. Um, but after that, like that was, that was it. That was kind of a transition. And then what made you not want to re-enlist then? I think, well, there's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> um... That last deployment was really rough um, for a lot of reasons. Like kind of nail in the coffins where you just didn't want to see any of that again. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot, a lot um, behind that. That was tough. Um, you know, after that, uh, basically those IEDs went off and you know, we lost uh, three incredible people. Um, we knew exactly who it was. Like it was the guy we were going after. Um, How long were you guys like? On a hunt for him, too. A while. I want to say he was actually a high-value target for a significant amount of time that nobody could really? track him down. Okay. Yeah, he was a, I mean, he was a straight-up bomb maker. Like, that's what he did. He oh, made IEDs. They, they got him after that. So, um, we knew where he was after that mission. And uh, we were told where he was at. We knew, you know, basically where to go get him. Um, the other platoon we were with, they... Uh, basically were banned from that mission on purpose, rightfully so. Why is that? Uh, a lot of different reasons. I think a, a lot of it would be, you know, they would be amped up to get into a fight with him on purpose. Oh, and it can just be too, like... Uh, Emotional. Yeah, like, yeah. there would definitely be... Too you know, close to heat, home. Too much, yeah, too close to home, all that kind of stuff. Um... That was difficult, too, because I ended up being the person who did the, um, basically, the site interrogation of him. Mm. Um, so they sent you in? They sent our platoon to go okay. get him. We found him. It was the right guy. And you interrogated him. We had to interrogate him. And, like, to know that a dude just killed one of your friends. Oh, and, fuck, man. That's good. And, like, look him in the face and know that it's the fucking <clears throat> dude who did it. And not be able to, you know, basically reciprocate. Get some justice or retaliation. Like, that was incredibly difficult. Because that's universal. That's everybody in that platoon feeling that way. Absolutely. 
So it wasn't just a capture then? It was basically handcuff and capture? Yep. And so we took him back, he got prosecuted. I don't know what happened to him, who knows? So there was no shots fired on that whole mission then? Nope. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, and so basically the reason why you didn't re-enlist was because obviously losing three very well, close people to you. That was a part of it. I actually, um, leading up to that deployment, I started having some uh, medical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, found out that I had a, a atrial septal defect, basically a hole in my heart. Really? Um, yeah, I went to SLC, which is a, a senior leaders course. Um, and I was on a run and I used to be a runner like all the time. Like pe- people in the, in my squad would hate me. They would call me a gazelle <laughs> because I would outrun everybody and, and like people just hated it. Um, anyways, uh, we were on a run and I was running and then, um, I could feel with every beat of my heart, like a stabbing, like, um, I don't know cramping feeling in my chest like it, it felt like somebody was stabbing my heart and then it was also cramping around it really bad with every beat and i thought it was something that would pass maybe it was heartburn or something i don't really know um but i thought maybe it would pass and i remember like i was at the front of the pack because we were doing a, a basically a whole um a course run basically everybody who was in the course we were all running uh, in the morning for pt and um, I fell out. It's the first time I've ever fallen out of a run, but I basically fell to the end and I eventually had to stop. And I remember one of the instructors, um, like thought I was just, I think he thought at first that I was just like having to, I don't know, puke or something. Mm-hmm. But then he noticed that I was like stopped and couldn't do anything. And he ran back to me and told me what was going on. And he was like, Oh shit. And uh, basically, they took me straight to the hospital and started running a bunch of tests on me. Is that caused from being on deployment, or is that just something <laughs> they that don't know? Comes? Okay, there's a there's a lot of things, so it it's it's not uncommon. Um, like a lot of people actually have it as a kid, like as a baby, as an infant, they just don't catch it because it's you know you don't have a reason to a small you, hole. You in can't heart treat it. Isn't that big a deal? Um, but I guess mine was significant enough to cause issues and pain. Um, and so that was another reason it's just, I started having medical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, we got tendonitis too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I have a bunch of little broken pieces in me, but, um, uh, yeah, it was between that, the, the last appointment I was on, um, honestly, like even if you would have asked me probably leading up to that last appointment I was on, mm-hmm. if I was going to reenlist, I probably would have told you yes. And I was really close to reenlisting on deployment because you, if you reenlist on deployment, you get a bonus, um, and it's, it's cash or it's uh, tax exempt. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so I came really close to reenlisting that, that deployment and, uh, Decided not to. And even after I came back, I remember our reenlistment bonuses like skyrocketed. Um, mm-hmm. Like they were insanely high. And uh, so that's why guys almost become like operators after. And that's, yeah. That's the money. And yeah, it's I mean, also meant can... the adrenaline and everything. I oh, imagine. yeah. There's a lot of reasons. Um, but no, I, I think I finally got to a point where it's like, you know what? I'm, I've done my time. I served six years. Um, I feel like I did a really good job. I feel like I left 
you know, my squad and platoon in a, in a good enough place, I guess, to leave a lasting impression to mm-hmm. where, you know, the, the next generation of people were trained well enough to, to carry on. And um, ultimately, I mean, that's what you do. It's like you train everybody to take your position eventually. Do you know guys that are still in? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That were in your squad? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know several wow. that are still in mm-hmm. that were in my squad. And you went, so when you um, basically got out, you then, this is a whole, this is a side of you that I didn't know about, is that when you got out, you went to Appalachian State in Boone, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and you went into engineering. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that you even had an interest in engineering. Mm-hmm. How did that transition? Like, how did you come out of post-war and military and just want to go into engineering? So, I actually wanted to work for... I wanted to be an engineer since I was a kid. Uh, and then what's funny is... Really? How yeah. did I not know that? <laughs> I don't know. But I've Bad always friend. wanted to be an engineer since a kid. I guess I didn't really voice it that much, but I don't know. Yeah, you don't really... Idea. As a kid growing up, like, until you're really in your fat last year of high school, do you really talk about too much? Like, what no. you're going to do when you grow up? Even in high school, I didn't know what the hell I wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, so, like, I don't know. It just never really came up. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to be an engineer, and then... I remember even, um, so my dad was in the Air Force. He served for 21 years. and um, But I would have told you every year, all the time, that I never wanted to join the military. Like, I would have told you I would have never wanted to join. Why did you join in the, Well, I mean, we got to answer one question at a time, but let's go back a little bit. And, like, what made you want to join? So, um, probably the biggest reason is... Uh, when I moved from Nebraska to Yucca Valley, so between my sophomore and junior year. Back to California. Yeah. Um, I moved to Yucca Valley and <laughs> I don't I don't know. I think maybe I got spoiled a little bit when I was in Nebraska and then I came to Yucca Valley and I mean I think you can agree at the time like Yucca Valley was bad. I'm trying to keep <laughs> my mouth shut because there's fucking nothing. <laughs> For people listening that don't know of Yucca Valley. From when we were there, it's grown quite a bit because a yeah, lot of people from it's Los, exploded. Now. A lot of people from Los Angeles um, are moving out there, opening Airbnbs, which Joshua Tree has become like the the huge hub. And Joshua yeah. Tree is like a five minute drive from Yucca Valley. Yeah. It's the next town over, and but it's crazy to see how the Airbnb business has taken off and grown that area. Because when we were growing up there, there was maybe fifteen thousand people. Yeah. Now I could be wrong. I want to say there's almost ten thousand more in that short amount of time, and so. Yeah, there was nothing to do. It was either you and I raced motorcycles or you did drugs. Yeah. And like you and I were in skateboarding and, and motocross and all that. Yeah. So that's kind of, so obviously going into this small desert town with nothing to do, yeah. it was kind of like a way for you to travel again and to mm-hmm. do something else. Well, so I've always wanted to do something exciting, um, but I, you know, I was going to, I was going to go to school. I, you know, my, my plan was to go to uh Northern Arizona University and mm-hmm. get my engineering degree there. Um, that was my long-term plan, but, you know, it fell through basically in high school. And um, I knew that really my only way out of that town was probably through the military. Most people's way out of that town is the military. Yep. And so... You got 29 Palms Marine Base right there, and I think yeah. every Marine hates that fucking place. Well, <laughs> so that was the interesting part, is I was like, well, I don't want to join the Air Force, because that's what my dad did. I don't want to join the Marine Corps, because I knew a lot of Marines at the time, and I was like... You need to get stuck there. Oh, I don't want to eat crayons all day, and all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> 
No, but I, I just didn't want, you know, I didn't want to do that. So then I, um, I, I went into the army recruiter's office and he was like, oh yeah, can you, you know, check us out, do this, whatever. And, uh, interesting story to cut it shorter. Um, my parents had to sign off that I was joining the army cause I was 17 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I took night classes at the community college to graduate early. Um, and so they signed off, but I, I told the recruiter I wanted to do something exciting. So they signed me up as a parachute rigger. They're like, well, you know, you won't go into combat really, but you'll, you know, at least be able to jump out of airplanes. So that's exciting. I was like, oh yeah, sounds great. Let me do that. Yeah. And then I went to MEPS the first time, which is the military. uh, Is it the evaluation? Evaluation and physical. I got it wrong, but I know it's a physical where you sign off. Yeah. Basically they check you, uh, make sure that you are, I guess not broken is yeah. really the biggest thing mentally and physically. Before you sign your life away. And yeah. Like, okay. And uh, so I went there and, and, and in process, they were like, no problem. Well, I did the delayed entry program. So I had to come back a few months later. Um, and when I came back a few months later, it was like a week or two before I actually shipped out. And um, I went through MEPS again and did my physical and everything. And I remember sitting down with a, uh, I think he was a lieutenant colonel or something like that. And he was like, son, I don't know what to tell you, but the job you originally enlisted for is not available anymore. And oh, shit. Like, what? And he was like, um, so I know you may want to like think about it and you know do something else. At this point in my mind, I'm young. I'm dumb. I didn't know what I was getting into. And I was like, well, I heard about the other airborne job. Let me, you know, I'll just do that one. The range and he was like... He was like, you mean Airborne Ranger? And I was like, yeah, that one. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had been completely oblivious to really like any of that. And uh, luckily, though, you had told me a bit about Airborne Rangers before. And like I had seen Black Hawk Down. I knew a little bit. Yeah, I remember. I remember kind of telling you because I was, yeah. again, still pretty obsessed back then. Yeah. And uh, wanting to enlist myself. And I remember... That was kind of like, I felt like the Special Forces branch of the Army. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Delta Force is an Army, is it? They are. Army. Is it? Okay, yeah. so it's Delta and uh, Army yeah. Rangers then. So you have, within the Army, you have Special Forces, uh, Rangers, and Delta Force. Okay. Yeah. So yes, I remember, I do remember you telling me about that, and I was shocked because I was like, damn, really? Like, you become an Army Ranger? Like, yeah. that's badass. I remember, too, lying to my mom, like, even after my first deployment. I remember... You told her you were a parachute rigger? No, I didn't tell her <laughs> I was a parachute rigger, but I told her I was never in danger mm. through my yeah. first, maybe even my second deployment or whatever. I, yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm deployed, but, you know, I'm safe. I'm fine, you know. Didn't tell her, you know, I was actually, like, clearing houses and stuff. Does she know how? <laughs> Uh, yeah, a bit. <laughs> to a certain extent. To a certain extent. Um, but yeah, it was uh, interesting. I, I guess I, I have a completely, I feel like, unique and different story to other people like that especially happen to end up in uh, Ranger Regiment because a lot of them have like these really like, I don't know, intense stories about how they had a higher calling. They you know knew the Pat Tillman story. Like they knew they needed to serve. They've always wanted to be Rangers, whatever the case may be. And you had no idea. Yeah. And I feel like that might be a little bit also what plays into my like reluctance to share what I've done because it's not that I feel like a fraud because I feel like I did really well at my job. Um, 
But at the same time, I know plenty of people who spent their whole life like that's what they were meant to do. That's what they wanted mm-hmm. to do. Um, you know, and I served and I did my six years and you were, uh, and I feel like, like what you just touched on, like you did your job. I feel like you, um, obviously did it pretty well because what you left, you were E6. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what rank technically was that? that you Staff had? sergeant. Okay. Yeah. So you basically were in charge of your squad. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So, and then, um, and then to kind of go back then. So basically, uh, you didn't want to reenlist for multiple reasons. And then you went to school for engineering. Was there like a, like I said, I didn't know from childhood growing up with you that you want to be an engineer, but was there one, because obviously you went to Appalachian State for engineer. Um, was there one like company that you were like kind of sought after that you want to work for right after school? <clears throat> yeah. So real quick, I did not go to App State for engineering. Oh, you did? Initially. Okay. I, I did get my degree in that, but that's not initially what I went there for. So I didn't know necessarily exactly what I wanted to do, but... Um, Steve Bodefeld, hell, no problem if I use his name, but uh, Steve Bodefeld and I served together. We went to basic, airborne, ripped together, served in the same platoon together. Um, he was only in for four years and I was in for six. And those last two years that I was in that he wasn't, um, like I visited him, I think a time or two. Mm-hmm. And I uh, saw Boone and I was like, wow, this is a beautiful place. He's like, yeah, you should come, you know, come to App State. And uh, I had no idea that he went to App. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh so I decided to go there. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Steve did a, an education degree. So I decided to basically follow in his footsteps, do the same thing. So mm-hmm. my undergrad is in education. And I thought I wanted to do that because I do love teaching people. And I still love teaching people. Was there a certain um, like subject or is it just in yeah, general? Uh, technology, engineering, and design. Okay. Um, so, you know, still, you know, fits within that engineering kind of right. idea. But to teach, you know, students, the next generation things and I've always wanted to do something that'll impact people, that'll help them. But yeah. um, anyway, so yeah, I uh, I did that. But honestly, after I did my student teaching, I realized like that is definitely probably not for me. And uh, I, I don't know, in certain situations, I think I would have taught, but um, I definitely realized that I needed to do something that I, I guess would be more challenging. So to go back to what you were asking, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, from very early on, I remember reading popular science and learning about Tesla and like right I, when they were starting mm-hmm. yeah. and I wanted to work at Tesla. And so I started gearing a lot of my education towards cool. working there. Um, like I started a solar vehicle racing team while I was at App State and ran that for five years. What was that called? Uh, team Synergy. Okay. Yeah. We built uh, design and built two different, Solar powered race cars, raced them, you know, across the United States a couple times and around a couple different tracks. Um, it was an awesome experience. That's what's funny too, is because, uh, no offense, I'm a fucking dumbass. So for some reason, I thought all my friends were also dumbass because <laughs> you, you are who you associate with. So I remember when you were like out of the military and then I heard you were going to school and I'm kind of getting more like the formal details now, but I kind of knew a little bit of what you're doing mm-hmm. and how you went to engineering. I'm like, oh, Dan's going to be an engineer? Like, really? Yeah. I'm like, damn, like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, I've worked with plenty of people still today that did not go to engineering school that I would argue are much better at their job than even I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot smarter and more capable at the engineering aspects of their job than a lot of the other engineers I work with. And you're in a good 
uh, like it seems like a really awesome company now. Mm-hmm. Would you like? Is there still a part of you that would still work for Tesla? Yeah, I think if the right opportunity presented itself, maybe. Okay. Um, I I love the company I work for. Honestly, like they do an incredible job for their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know work with the president directly. It's a pretty flat, and I would say newer company, meaning like a lot of the employees. You know, the president's office is right down the hall. Anybody can go talk to them at any time. Mm-hmm. The jobs we do are always changing, which kind of is great, but also, you know, presents its own sort of difficulties, I yeah, guess. Yeah, of course. Um, but the fact that it's always changing, you're working with people, teaching people, like, I, I think it's a it's an awesome place to work. So how did, I guess, going into that, like, doing what you do now, how did military life, I guess, being in the military, how did it affect your life, do you think? Like being fast forwarding until now. Yeah. Like, did it benefit you? Is there like certain oh, yeah. things? Absolutely. Um, I think the the biggest thing is the uh, two things probably that stand out the most is is uh, the discipline in my work. So I I have a problem where I don't like to say no to things. Mm-hmm. So I take on a lot more responsibility really than I can even handle, but. I typically will end up getting the job done. And so just having that discipline of like, no, I got to get this done. Yeah. Just doing it. Um, Even if it's not perfect, honestly, most of the time when I think of perfection, I, I overdo what I should be doing. Of course. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So I try and get it there, but I never, uh, for the most part, I don't, but um, I try to. And then um, the other part probably is is the mentorship and like teaching people is like I still don't do this and I'm trying to ingrain this and you know and and weave it into my life a little bit more but I don't bring back a lot of my military experience when I explain like why certain things work and why others don't Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm changing that like I'm I'm leading up a a new uh, leadership development course within our company um, and I'm kind of weaving a lot of military um, leadership into that course, which I think is going to be really good for everybody who takes it. Yeah. I think it's, it's, what's cool is that obviously transitioning into that and working for such a good company that you're with now, it's cool to even see that with what we're doing with United Valor, that that has become like more of like a passion kind of project on the side mm-hmm. to where, and I think it's, I think it was kind of your idea at least for the book that we're working on. Cause yeah. I remember I came to you and me selling like fine art prints and doing photography full time, um, wanting to get more into the fine art world and figure out, I, I want to create a coffee tail book. So like I spent, you know, a whole month driving across country when I moved from California to here and I knew I wanted to create a book, but I was like, I kind of want to create like two books. I want to do one person for me. That's all landscapes and places that I saw in my travel. But I want to do something that's like beneficial to others. And then I was already doing prints for veterans and I like didn't connect them. And I think when I was talking to you, you're like, well, you should do a book on veterans. Like how it's going to benefit veterans. And I thought it was such a cool idea that we could work on this book and and feature other veterans and their stories. And then it became a company. Then it was like, well, do I sell the book through my personal photography website? And we were like, no, fuck that. Like, how big can we take this thing? So it's it's cool to see, like, as our lives have matured and we've gone 
our ebbs and flows in life. I feel like we've always been connected, yeah. even if it's been a year without speaking, you know, and I went through some dark times, you went through your own. And then now it's like, we're in the same fucking house right now. Yeah. While I'm still in search of my own place. It's cool. Even just being here, living with you and now working on a company that we can help other people out. You know, yeah. and if they're having their own struggles or whatever, to kind of go forward from that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I definitely, I th- I definitely think there's a lot of fate and, you know, a lot of life and you, you definitely create your own opportunities. Um, but there was definitely a lot of fate in us kind of reconnecting and, and mm-hmm. you moving out here. And I think we have found our common purpose. I agree. Like, yeah. you know, I've, I've been wanting to figure out a way to give back, to do something for veterans. Cause you know, I, I talked to plenty in the organizations I'm working in now, or some of the veterans that I went to school with that I knew that I would talk to them and everything. And are there ones now that you like, like, uh, organizations? Yeah. Uh, the, well, yeah. Um, I just recently got involved with them because I've been at school and then I went on the road basically for a year and a half of my job and now I'm here in Raleigh permanently. And so I found a, a hockey veterans organization and, um, they're all, you know, service disabled veterans and mm-hmm. we all, uh, basically play hockey, hockey competitively and, um, have a great time with it. And it's awesome. And like hearing some of their stories, you know, it's great to kick back and like joke with each other and we all have different, yeah. Like, Levels of crude humor. <laughs> That's always been but, up your alley, though. You've always been in hockey. Yeah, since absolutely. you're from Nebraska. Yep, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to play hockey, so it was a perfect organization for me to get um, involved in. But what is that called? Uh, North Carolina Warriors Hockey. Okay. Um, yeah, they just started up. I want to say the beginning of last year, so they're pretty new as well. But um, we're growing fast. Like uh, the guy who runs it, uh, Travis. He's like grown the program so fast and it's incredible like how many veterans have gotten involved now is it all centered around veterans like on the players yeah all the players are veterans really i think um two of the coaches are not veterans um but they're usa hockey like certified coaches and they do an awesome job that's awesome Um, so yeah it's a really cool tight-knit kind of group um i'm still new in the group but i can already tell like i'm very quickly fitting into the fold um so it's it's exciting to see um, but, to to get back to what we are doing, um, the, uh, you know, I've been talking to one of our friends, Jordan Hillstrom, me and him have, you know, always talked about with you, didn't he? Huh? He served with you. Yeah. Me and him served, uh, range battalion together. We were in different platoons, but we, uh, I guess met and became like really good friends, um, in ranger school and mm-hmm. we've stayed connected ever since. Yeah. Um, and done a lot of things. He's a good guy. I like him. Different things together, but I've always like bounced things and ideas off of him of how to help veterans and stuff like that. We've been trying to figure out, you know, what can we do? And when you presented that you wanted to figure out something to do for veterans and you said you were going to do a photo book, I was like, that's it. Let's do a photo book for veterans. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out a way to help out veterans tell the untold stories. Like, show America like what people have been through in combat and share the stories that aren't making like news headlines and, yep. um, you know, uh, aren't selling books and stuff like that. Yes, this is a book, but it's, it's 
personal stories with high, you know, high, high quality portraits of these people so that, you know, the friends, family, uh, extended loved ones Mm -hmm. can like see their faces, see their story and get excited about it. That's the cool part that I love doing about it is that I get to personally meet all these unique um, veterans with their own stories and photograph them. Like whether it be at their home or their workplace or, you know, something like, for instance, like you with hockey, something that they're passionate about that they've taken on post-war. And just, I guess, seeing the emotion when I get to talk to these people and taking these artistic photos and making this almost kind of like a a memorial piece of a book. Mm -hmm. Like I, I want this book to really kind of have an effect on people that have this thick coffee tail book that's very um, professional looking and it has all these unique stories that nobody's heard about. I want, you know, other veterans for me not knowing anything as a civilian, but if it can help people that are struggling to go through it and and just see that other people have been through their, their shoes or have been through similar, um, you know, times that they can look upon and feel like they're not alone. Feel like there's other people out there that can help them and we can somehow relate it to um, bringing, you know, importance to these organizations and having veterans reach out to these organizations if they have hard times in their life. Mm-hmm. I think that this this whole project and this whole company that we have going is really going to benefit a lot of people. And it's, it's like, we were kind of talking earlier before we started this about how there's... Um, Certain companies that kind of go into it and they focus on the very popular people, the people that maybe have started like a, a crazy business or a company and they're kind of focusing on the bigger people because obviously from a business, it's very smart that you focus on the big people. I, I totally get it from a marketing standpoint because you get their audience, it comes into your audience and you build this big community and you make more money. Maybe you can give more money back by doing that. Yeah. I think that we're kind of going out about it as focusing on um, lack of a better term, the underdogs mm-hmm. and focusing on these people that don't have book deals. They don't have huge followings on social media. They don't have gun companies that are sponsoring them. They don't have all this, this mass attention coming to their name because for the most part, I think they're trying to stay dormant. And I think that even for the few people we've talked to, we've had a mixture of people that are super open and all about it. And we have people that are, it's a hard time, you know, even like some, like the discussion that you and I had, you know, I can tell it's, it's, it's tough for them to want to break open that, that exterior and open up. And I think that's my main objective is to not people, not put people in a hot seat or make them uncomfortable, but if it's not going to help them personally to get it out there, maybe it's going to help others. Mm-hmm. Maybe other people can listen to the podcast we're doing. They can, open the book and read it. They can call these organizations and see that like it's really contributing to somebody else's mental state. Yep. And I think that's overall the bigger picture of what I see with the company. Yep. Yeah. To bring it full circle, like we talked about the being on podcast and, you know, talking about it, about this book and about the podcast is like, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna provide purpose to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, I think, in a, you know, like, I, you know, I even went through just now, like going through some awesome stories and some hard stories and, yeah, you know, hopefully those are going to resonate with a lot of veterans and hopefully even a lot of civilians are going to realize, you know, you know, what we've all been through, um, 
And hopefully, you know, even if a, a veteran doesn't see a path, a clear path forward of like, what can they do? What are they good at? Um, you know, hopefully from talking and, and getting all these stories, they're going to find their purpose and they're going to realize that, you know, there's plenty out there for them to do. And hopefully we can highlight some of these organizations that, you know, have been successful in helping mm-hmm. veterans and, and provide them an outlet to go to like, totally. Um, like this hockey organization, like I love hockey. And so if I can connect veterans and hockey, like <laughs> that's like the perfect place for me to be. So, um, you know, I know there's a lot of hidden veteran organizations out there that are ready to help people that are successful at it, but maybe, you know, they don't, the, the person hasn't been connected with the right organization yet. Hopefully we can, you know, connect those people together. So I, I think Dude, sure, man. I'm yeah. excited Absolutely. Uh, Where's your whiskey? There you go. <laughs> I think it's like, there's a lot, you know, like obviously it's a first podcast and I've done a few before um, when I was a bit younger and I always enjoyed doing it. It's just, it's always hard to coordinate when you got, I think the one that I had, there was like four of us guys and like half of them were, you know, the other two were in college and it was hard to coordinate. And I think you've been on a few. Yeah. But I think it's like you said, this was kind of your idea to do these podcasts. Like my overall vision was to just do a book. And then eventually like I've been, you know, graphic design and creating designs for t-shirts and hoodies and hats and, you know, merchandise and all that. And then to give back proceeds towards a veteran organization that benefits veterans. But um, it was kind of you that was like, why stop there? Like, why just go out to these people's homes and interview them and take their photo and dumb down the story to a short version for the book. Let's just like save the audio and do a whole yeah. podcast. And I think it's like really cool and really smart. Cause I never really would have thought of that. I think it's more endearing. Yeah. Um, and I think much more people will appreciate that knowing that there's audio files that are saved that their families and friends and all that can listen to. Absolutely. I mean, like there's, there's plenty of stories and history behind, you know, the the veterans of the world wars and of, you know, the Korean War and Vietnam War and Desert Storm even and beginning of this war that didn't share their story. Mm-hmm. They didn't you know, they didn't open up, they didn't decide to share their their moment basically overseas. Um and it wasn't until later in life that they decided to start sharing them. Like I think we need to share them now. Yeah. I think we need to get them recorded. I think we need to provide our kids and next generation the opportunity to basically hear like what we all went through so that it's, it's historical, you know, it's written down, it's fact, it's, you know, from the eyes of the person who was on the ground. And I think that's going to have a greater impact on everybody who listens to it than, you know, reading it from a book, not to say the photo book, because I think the photo book is going to be well beyond what other people are expecting. Yeah. Um, as far as impactful, seeing their face, reading their story. Um, but I'm saying like a textbook, like you yeah. don't get the same impact from a textbook because we're, they're going to be, you know, writing about the global war on terrorism. You know, if it's not in textbooks now, it will be here in the future. Um, it'll be great to have a place that people can listen to these stories and really connect with them and, and hopefully it'll resonate more. I don't know if there's like a, um, a whole lot out there and I, I may be, um, dumb in the sense of not doing my research with that but i feel like for the short amount of time that i have spent looking up other books and i haven't seen really anything on like that level 
Yeah. Like there's a lot of books I think that portray and salute veterans from all branches and they show their stories. Um, the book you just bought by George Bush. Yeah. I is, think that's the closest thing. That's honestly. the closest thing. And probably the one that I've seen that I'm like really blown away by. Yeah. I haven't really seen a whole lot to an extent that's been like maybe me being an artist, being super picky and like trying to look for photo journals. I'm just not like really blown away or it hasn't like touched me, you know, and I almost want to create something that can be passed down that maybe a veteran has an excitement of a level to want to be a part of it. And maybe others are kind of hesitant, but then when it's all said and done, that when their family or their friends see it or they look back on it later in life when they're 70, 80 years old and they're like, man, that was a really cool opportunity. And it's as much as I hate seeing my personal photo, like I hate taking yeah. photos of myself in a book. It's cool to see that like maybe I was acknowledged or maybe my story was shared. Maybe it brings some life to them. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a whole greater cause to all of this. And I just, I mean, I think you touched on it earlier, but, I, I want to kind of see if you have a deeper idea. Like, what do you think is is one thing that civilians are misled by in the military? Like, do you think there's one kind of area that maybe us civilians only see with military and there's something else that's not portrayed? Yeah, I think uh, overgeneralization is the biggest and, and what downfall. Again, like at the beginning, I was saying either people think that there's like uh, nothing but vet bros, like people who are just like loudmouth veterans or... Ride street bikes and all that. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, that always get in fights, always have domestic abuse, like all these different things. Or they think we're all broken coming back, like with PTSD and have issues and that we're never going to be able to, you know, reacclimate in the workforce sure. and stuff like that. And that's probably the biggest reason why a lot of veterans don't speak up because they're afraid that if they do say something, like it'll affect their job or their career or their, you know, relationship to their church or to whatever it may be, you know, like they're put into a certain category. Yeah. And I think it's that, you know, overgeneralization. And I, I think the biggest thing that will come from this is for everybody to realize that everybody is different. Mm -hmm. Everybody's experience is different. Everybody processes things in a different way. And you cannot generalize everybody just because they have one thing in common and that they serve this country. Well, they're, they're humans and we all have our own emotions. So I think with that said is, I think it's, it's easy for civilians to stereotype and to, put military veterans or even still active duty soldiers in a certain category or a certain box. Yeah. You know, I, I'm guilty of that. I think when I was younger, I thought, you know, there's either these like badass fucking killing machine military people, or there's the people that come back that are, like you said, completely devastated. But I think even from knowing you and talking with other veterans that have become, um, you know, recent friends of mine through you, it's kind of opened up this idea that like, dude, we're all human at the end of the day and we all have our own experiences. And it's it's kind of opened my eyes to where some of them become huge like uh, business owners and have started up organizations to help out other veterans. Yeah. And it's cool to see like you're doing that now. You yeah. know, like starting up this business and helping me out with it and connecting me with all these veterans and people that I find so much interest in with interviewing or taking their photos 
and then giving back to a community that might be in need or just might want to be part of a community that feels like they're somehow not misunderstood and yeah. feels like they're accepted. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Like when I really think about it. Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, bridging the gap. Like, yeah. That's hopefully what this, you know, this is a, I mean, when you really think about it, it is an experiment. Mm-hmm. Like we, you said a few minutes ago, like, I don't know if there's anything out there similar to what we're doing right now. There could be, and we just haven't found it yet. Totally. And if there is, I'd love for people to, you know, like, I want to message see us and show us and yeah. be like, hey, look, this is very similar, or this is exactly what you're doing. And that's awesome. I'd love to connect with that group. But to this point, I have not seen anything with, you know, what we're doing. So this is to us an experiment. And mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, it pans out the way that we think it's going to. And hopefully people will um appreciate it especially you know i think more so than anybody else i hope the veterans who give the time to share their story their family and loved ones and friends and stuff will you know take a lot out of it and will learn probably even more about you know their loved one than they have in the past yeah um and the fact that, you know, our end goal is to archive these and keep these, you know, basically online so that anybody can listen to them. Like, that's going to be powerful to have their stories totally. up there. What time are we at right now? We run over? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going way over? Oh, yeah. We're oh, man. Hours. Is, oh, two hours? Yeah. Oh, damn. We've been going. <laughs> I, I want to, we'll wrap it up here in a sec. But um, what do you think your favorite, uh, what's your favorite memory of you and I? Like you're growing up together. Oh, boy. Like story or memory. We gotta end this Honestly, <laughs> do you your parents know about the back window, right? The back window, the sliding glass door with the bird. No, they don't. <laughs> oh, they might now. <laughs> Is that when you shut a baby through it? Yeah. Oh, fuck. should we share that? You totally know. should share. It. <laughs> I'm thirty. They, they, they still have the same house. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, they don't it's care. Been over fifteen years, I guess. <laughs> Probably the best one. I forgot about fact this. This they, is a good one. Yeah, the, the fact that they, I guess, still don't know about this crouching you know, So me and Bo used to go out back and shoot. Uh, I had a like a pump action BB gun, and we used to go shoot all kinds of stuff. And we were, Dude, we, we were bad. terrible. We killed bunnies and birds. Oh. I felt so bad to this. Yeah, day. not not. Probably. We had a lot of coyotes. We had a lot of bunnies and birds in the area. So like, I don't know. I, I feel really bad about it, but at the same time, like. Coyotes got their feet, I guess. That's a part of our childhood. Yeah. But anyways, um, I remember we uh, were shooting the BB gun and it was like normally for your normal action, you, you pump it 10 times and then you could shoot. And like that was pretty straight. So I think you were standing inside the glass door. Oh, your parents aimed glass it at my door. head. Yeah. The, your parents' glass door. And I... Just shot real quick at the glass door. It didn't do anything the first time. No. Remember, I just like randomly shot at you because we thought it would be funny. And I put my head up against and it the second time. And then you put your head up against it and you're like, oh yeah, shoot me in the That's head type thing. We were idiots. Anyway, so we shot and uh, we shattered the glass door. You know what's funny is I felt the BB hit me right in the forehead. Yeah. And I think, I think the it was pressure, the pressure. Yeah. yeah. I think it was the pressure of your forehead against the glass. So it shattered the glass door, and then we were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? But it fell through. Like, the whole glass, yeah. it, like, was one of those glass windows that, uh, I don't know the proper term, but it fucking splintered the whole thing into little yeah. shards. And if you barely push it on your safe, finger. It was like the safety glass. Exactly. So it, just, like, it just all fell through. Yep. 
And so we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We don't know. And we figured let's uh, like stage basically a bird ran into the glass window. So we killed a bird and then <laughs> laid it next to the window. Oh. And my parents got home and I remember telling them, oh, a bird flew into it. Let me tell you for anybody who's like animal lovers and like think that we were terrible. Trust me, I know I was terrible. We were fucking ten or eleven. Like, we were young. I was so bad, and I hope my child never does anything that I ever did. And I feel horrible about it. And hopefully, I put enough love and things into the world that pays back for the bird that we killed. But I think I just used totally like <sighs> age as an excuse. But yeah. I think it was like growing up out there, and we get we we're mischief, you know, in a bunch of mischief. How do I fucking say this? Mischievous is what I'm looking for. <laughs> Mischievous. <laughs> Mischievous. <laughs> and we just got in a lot of trouble. And uh, I think pretty soon after that, I was like, I can't keep shooting these animals. I'm not a psychopath. I'm not going to yeah. keep doing this unless it's ethical like nowadays with deer and all that where I'm going to eat it and use all of it. But that that's funny because I completely forgot about that. And then once you brought up, I remembered every second. And detail that story. So we staged this bird, I remember, in front of the glass door. And then I can't remember exactly what you did, but I want to say we were like, fuck it, let's just leave it where it's at. And hopefully, I can't remember if you told your parents ahead of time or if you... No, I think we left it. We went back to your house. Yep. And then I think your dad called you home or something. And I was like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And I was like... Just stick with the story. Hey, mom, you dad, had no idea know. that it was a bird. Mom <laughs> and dad know now. <laughs> I think they'll fucking laugh about it because it is a funny <clears throat> story. And you know what? I think my dad is so smart with a lot of shit that I try to pull over his head that he did a lot of stuff when I was younger. Yeah. I don't even know if he really even gave into it. I think he was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, he I'm probably sure. he's probably forgot about it, but maybe not. Maybe he's remembering now, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you know what I'll, really quickly i think you know my favorite story is uh our lake havasu story oh, yeah of when we uh a friend of ours invited us out to lake havasu arizona i forget how old we were probably 16 17 uh yeah i think we were about 16 yeah again going back to the whole jackass days i remember we bought a bunch of fireworks and we bought all those bottle rockets and it was on the lake at like 11 p.m and I was lighting bottle rockets like out of my ass, basically like holding the stick like between my cheeks, and then someone was lighting them, and we were filming it, just getting like funnier like footage off of it. And I remember we lit like a few off, and the local uh, police came after us. Yep. And I think one of them was like a uh, police officer that was like on an ATV or like an off-road vehicle that came down. And we saw the lights and we immediately ran and dropped all of our shit. I remember there was four of us and you and I took off in one direction and Tim and our other friend took off in another. Mm -hmm. And I just remember you and I like jumping through bushes and not finding much cover until we went down to like the lake, like a little kind of like a little bankment where there was like a little cliff edge and bush. And I remember like half my body because I was still in swim trunks was in the water and I was hiding in a bush and I remember seeing... Or hearing the ATV come up like within 10 feet of us yeah. and parking and hearing him walk around and shine the flashlight. And off in the distance, we just hear two donkeys out there. I don't know if they were mating. <laughs> they were definitely mating. Or if they were just fucking 
hee-hawing away, but that was the funniest shit. And I was trying not to like bust up laughing hearing these donkeys just like out in the distance. <laughs> and I remember he then left and we went back to camp. Um, I think Tim's parents at the time, I think they had like an RV yeah. and we were staying in. We went back to the RV and like was like totally like drinking underage and hanging out. And it took about an hour and a half for them to come back. And they told us that like another police officer chased them up like a hill and they outran them like calling the cop a fat ass or something like totally 15, 16 years old, just being punks and then came back. And it was like the funniest night because we were so full of adrenaline and just like kept drinking. That was probably, I think, one of my tops and there's so many, but I think that's, that's one I'll never forget. Yeah. So, but anyways, I don't know. Is there anything left over you want to say? No, I just, uh, just keep drinking. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for this podcast. I'm excited for this experience. I'm excited for, um, everybody to listen to these stories. And, um, I think the, the biggest thing, you know, is we can only grow as, you know, Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, the people that listen and care about the message grow. So, you know, hopefully people listen to this and share it and hopefully people will listen to the subsequent podcasts and interviews and share it. Um, and I'm really excited to get this company off the ground, United Valor, and get the yeah. book going and um, just kind of the whole thing. I, I think it's going to be, you know, a therapeutic experience for me, honestly. Um, but also, I, I'm hoping that it helps a lot of veterans and I hope it helps um, bridge the gap with the civilians that are, are listening. I, I believe it will, too. And I think it's going to be a very... <clears throat> up and down a roller coaster and heart wrenching experience for me to meet these people and have no idea what it's like to be in the uniform um, or to be overseas fighting just to see the emotion and, uh, and, and, and hear the stories. I'm really looking forward to it. So I love you, man. I'm yeah. excited for this too. Love and, you too. Uh, one more cheers. cheers. Let's take a shot. We'll end it there. Thank you guys for listening. We're going to keep drinking, but uh, we'll be back with the next podcast with another uh, guest of ours here shortly. And uh, until next time, we'll see you soon. All right. Take care.